Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. AT&T announced this week that they are sunsetting their 3G network. This is something that's been in the works for many years and uh, they were targeting February of 2022 and looks like they are, are moving forward with those plans. Uh, the other carriers will, are set to follow suit. T-Mobile will do the same in the third quarter, followed by Verizon by the end of the year. All of the carriers are shutting down 3G in order to reallocate some of that spectrum for 4G and 5G, newer standards and arguably more efficient than uh, the 3G networks. But it does cause some problems for those who are on 3G networks or uh, relying on uh, 3G networks for, for other devices, medical alert equipment or home alarms, for example. You know, we, we saw some of uh, these kinds of challenges when the networks uh, shut down the 2G networks, uh, which were some of the first ones that were capable of any kind of data. Of course, back then, it was really just consumers that had access to cell phones. Uh, it was very early days of data, of course. And so it really wasn't very difficult for the carriers to say, hey, if the issue is that your phone is going to stop working, we'll just give you a new phone. Uh, because by that point, the uh, 3G technology was very mature. It really didn't cost a lot to replace their phones. Maybe they kept them on a legacy plan. And and so people were, were able to stay uh, connected to the network. Now we're starting to see some of the consequences of the proliferation of cellular connectivity in devices such as these uh, IoT products or some of these industrial products where the carrier may not really have a lot of access or it may just be practically difficult to get to some of these kinds of products to replace uh, what's going on there. But Sean, as you know, it's really a necessary step for the continued proliferation of 5G, which will be a far more efficient standard and allow carriers to better serve uh, customers, even in these industrial spaces. With the passing of 3G, it's kind of an interesting time to think back about what that network really entailed. Thinking back, for example, to the launch of the original iPhone, which did not have uh, 3G and uh, what a perceived hindrance that was in terms of developing a number of these uh, data services for the iPhone in the early days. And then when the first uh, 3G enabled iPhones came on the scene, that was really the beginning of an explosion of services. It really made possible, for example, for the first time, things like streaming audio. Uh, prior to the 3G iPhone, Pandora had been this niche service that some people listen to on the web, but once they released their app, uh, that really was the beginning of what had been a, a very strong uh, rise uh, for the app. Unfortunately, uh, it wasn't able to maintain its position in the marketplace as uh, competition set in from services offering fuller access uh, to uh, to music catalogs. Uh, but it was really a breakthrough app uh, back at the time. 
uh, even services such as uh, Uber, for example, you really did not need to have very high speed cellular connectivity for an app like that to be practical. Of course, once we moved to 4G, that really enabled things like uh, streaming video on smartphones. But uh, in terms of data, some of the early web access, uh, it was really, really a watershed. I think one of the differences between then and now is that everybody understood the value of 3G. Everybody understood that back at that time, data access from a cell phone was a really terrible experience. And there was no question that more speed would help the situation. And everyone could look to the web to see some of the services that could be brought to the smartphone, as opposed to 5G, where we have gotten along pretty well with the services that LTE can enable, the streaming video, streaming audio, very functional web access for the overwhelming majority of, uh, of web pages. There are some things in terms of latency and augmented reality that 4G really isn't up to snuff on, but these are, I would argue, more speculative applications. I think they're promising applications, but back in the 3G era, it just seemed like there was this pent-up demand for data, and as we move to 5G, there's less of that sense of, of urgency and pent-up demand. I, I think that's definitely true on the consumer side. I would argue that some of the rich features that 5G promises are probably more applicable to the industrial side of the economy or the enterprise side of the economy and, and aren't necessarily consumer facing. So it, it's interesting that 5G has made such a strong marketing push for consumers and consumer applications, and there's been commercials around 5Gs, and, and maybe that's the, the carrier's way of monetizing the deployment of 5G, but I think the, the real promises of 5G are going to materialize on the industrial side when we think about factories of the future or smart buildings or, or uh, you know, other things like that. So increasing the density of devices in, in a an environment that's something that 3G is not, you know, good at. 4G is not really good at, um, and and 5G will bring some really unique attributes. So I, I, it will be interesting to see when we start to hit that inflection point, we really start to open up those new features. To your point, Ross, we did see with the launch of these earlier uh, cellular technologies, you know, with 3G, we started to see some new features. I would argue like 4G was when we really started to see the, the mobile web as we experience it today. And, and I do agree with you that 5G, at least now, doesn't look like it's going to, to change that consumer experience much. But um, I think it will play in the peripherals where there isn't a lot of cellular connectivity right now. So if you think about, for example, uh, robotics. If you're wanting to connect robotics today, you really need to have a pretty strong connection. You're you're connecting it with you know a wired Cat5 connection. Uh, you're not relying on Wi-Fi, especially in an industrial environment where you want it to be secure. And you know, so 
when we start to think about mobile robots, 5G becomes really interesting. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll see that play a role in consumer homes. Certainly Amazon and, and others would like that to be the case. But uh, to me, the, the really interesting use case scenarios there are very expensive uh, mobile robots within industrial settings, within manufacturing complexes, and even within cities where we're using them for delivery and, and other things like that. Well, that's a really good point about what 5G can do to make today's applications work better. And I think each of these cellular generations has, in its own way, had these these standard war issues at play. When 3G came out, there was GSM versus CDMA. And when 4G came on the scene, there was uh, WiMAX that Sprint supported and uh, and of course LTE, which uh, which prevailed, and with five G, it's it's a different kind of fragmentation. It's it's not that kind of winner take all standards war, uh, but rather the question around where it is deployed, uh, in in what spectrum is it deployed, which brings us back a little bit to the three G sunsetting and redeployment of that spectrum, but. It's just a, a different kind of experience depending on what kind of 5G you have access to. And uh, a lot of the most exciting applications for 5G take place with the millimeter wave flavor of it that is uh, highly constrained when it, when it comes to range. Uh, it, it will certainly improve over time, and particularly here in the United States, there is a lot of excitement about the so-called mid-band spectrum, which offers a very nice compromise between the reach of a lot of today's networks and the speed of those uh, ultra-fast uh, millimeter wave uh, implementations. But uh, all, all of these are going to take some time to flesh out and uh, reach their full potential. I think the great thing about millimeter wave is that it, it really gets to show the promise of what can happen when the network is operating to its full potential, and particularly with standards such as uh, CBRS, there's uh, opportunity for many of these uh, private commercial deployments that, that you mentioned, Sean. Uh, and so nobody argues that, that there isn't uh, a lot that could happen down the road. Uh, it's just that I think there are just far more question marks about the ultimate impact. There's no real model the way that there was that the way that the web provided one for cellular back in the day, and that I just take as a sign of maturity of uh, of cellular uh, and and how far it's come. I think if you look back at these earlier generations of cellular, so you go back to to the launch of three G, and the promise was. Essentially, it can do everything that 2G was doing and more. And 4G, I think, arguably offered that same promise. It can do everything that 3G is yeah, offering. So does 5G says, you know, is a similar proposition for, for 4G as well. So do you think that we'll see 10 years from now, 4G start to be phased out? We seem to be on these kind of 20-year time horizons. It was the early aughts when, when 3G was first deployed commercially. We're now here at 2022 and starting to see the, the sunset of that. Um, that puts us, you know, 
10 years of ramping up adoption, 10 years of, of waning adoption. Um, but it, it feels to me like 5G, the, the promise and premise of 5G is that it's that it augments in some ways what 4G can do. It isn't really being positioned as a, a replacement of 4G. And to your point about you know some of the great benefits being in the, the millimeter wave segment of that, uh, you, you definitely wouldn't be replacing 4G, uh, the, the range that 4G can offer with, uh, you know, with 5G. Um, so I, it will be interesting. And, and obviously right on the heels of 5G, we have 6G that uh, will be launched, you know, sometime in the future. Maybe it will take advantage of, you know, some of the, um, some of the attributes that 4G brings to the table around wider range, but not handling the density, for example, that 5G can, can handle. Uh, in, in other news, we saw that uh, Spotify is finally bringing to market their car thing device, winning the uh, award for most creative uh, product name. Car, car thing, you make my car sing. Yeah. So this is a, a small device that Spotify unveiled in April of 2021, it's kind of interesting that the timing around the launch of this in the first point, because it was at a time where uh, we weren't really driving that much. I mean, we were driving more than we had been in 2020, but we weren't certainly driving as much as we had been pre-pandemic. And here was a dedicated device really aimed at the, the automotive market. Uh, when they unveiled it in April, more than 2 million people signed up to the uh, wait list. And the price point, uh, as it goes on sale this month, is going to be uh, $90, slightly higher than the $80 that was uh, originally uh, priced at. And uh, it, it is essentially a device that allows you to have access to your Spotify yeah, it's a, it's a control interface, and uh, one of the differentiators to it is that it has uh, physical controls, it has a few buttons up on top, it has uh, an almost comically oversized dial for manipulating the interface. Of course, it has a touchscreen, very, very thin uh, device, I'll, I'll get more into that uh, in a minute. Uh, but it's it's multimodal. You can you can use speech, you can use touch, you can use buttons, uh, really allowing the driver to have the most flexibility and the least distraction in terms of uh, calling up music via the Spotify service. It also, of course, requires a premium Spotify subscription. So you can't access this if you're one of Spotify's free subscribers. And that was also probably part of what attracted uh, many of the eager beta testers in the early days that Spotify was seeding a few of the pre-release units for for free uh, to, uh, to beta testers before offering it uh, at the $80 pre-release price and ultimately the, the $90 re release price. We uh, saw that they plan to also add additional features beyond Spotify to, to the device. They say that they want to have an open platform. So services like Audible might be coming to the, to the device. 
to me, I think Spotify recognizes pretty significant changes happening in the automotive sector. You're seeing that dedicated space in the center of the console slowly going away. It's being replaced by displays that run the entire width of the car, pillar to pillar. Uh, if you look at Mercedes, they've got a, a new uh, dashboard technology called HyperDash, which uses AI to, uh, to surface the features that you tend to use. It's using machine learning and other things to, to create what they call a zero layer uh, interface. So when we think about getting into the vehicle, the radio has for really since the beginning occupied that center piece of the console sitting between the two, the, the, the driver and the passenger in the front seat or the co-pilot as they are often called now. And it had buttons, presets, it had dials. And uh, as that goes away and moves away and users are relying more on their phones or other things, I think Spotify recognizes that uh, there's, there's the risk that they are bifurcated out of the, uh, of the market. And at the same time, we see all of the big tech companies entering in this space. So Google has you know, launched their Google Automotive operating system, not to be confused with Google oh, with Android, Android Auto. Android Auto, which is essentially uh, you know, lays over the, the phone, is the interface for the phone. But Android Automotive uh, will be a native operating system run in, in the vehicle. Number of auto manufacturers have signed on to use it. And it will have a number of Google apps natively available. Google Map, of course, but also YouTube Music. So now all of a sudden, maybe you're listening to music on YouTube Music rather than on a different paid service. Spotify sees that as a as a risk, and um, and you know I think it's part of the the desire of companies like Spotify. It's a Netflix type approach to be on every possible device and have dedicated devices that uh, can can be the portal to the service and, and really provide a dedicated uh, outlet to the service. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Sean, thinking about how historically music has had such an integral role in the automobile going back uh, at least till the 50s and the dawn of Motorola, of course, that was their, their first product, the, uh, the in-car uh, radio. And for this product, it's, uh, you know, to, also to your point, I'm, I'm sure Spotify will maintain uh, an aggressive pursuit of the car manufacturers and the platforms and uh, continue to, to try to get that kind of preferred placement uh, as an option. I, I would argue that their large body of free subscribers helps them to make that case that uh, it is something that car makers should include uh, for uh, be, to to serve their customers uh, because there's uh, there's so many millions of them. Uh, this product is, I think, kind of an interesting bridge, and it reminds me actually a lot of the early Sirius XM. Well, before the merger, so it was either Sirius or XM tuners uh, that uh, we would see in in the aftermarket before. They were integrated into so many head units. There would be these, these little dial interfaces that you would clip onto the vent or that would hang off the car lighter. And they were clearly uh, 
clearly aftermarket you know, products. They just they just were not integrated very elegantly, uh, but they had a job to do, which was to provide access to a service. And that's essentially what this product does. Um, the other interesting contrast that I see with it is a contrast to Android Auto and CarPlay, which are these similar proposition in that all of all of them depend on the phone uh, for the service and the connectivity. Uh, the Spotify car thing is just a gateway. It, it really can't access anything by itself. It's just a, a, a Bluetooth uh, device. Uh, and in many ways, those, uh, those technologies, CarPlay and Android Auto, are supersets of what uh, CarThing offers, but but CarThing is a more optimized interface. I think that they're trying to make it less of a hassle, particularly if you don't have a, a wireless uh, Android Auto or CarPlay connection. You got to plug in your phone all the time. You have to navigate to the right app. Uh, if you're, you know, with, with this sort of thing, you could just hop in the car. It connects wirelessly. It's there. You don't have to sacrifice whatever else may be displayed on your center console or LCD screen. Uh, and I think there's something to be said for that that optimized experience. I think there's also something to be said for other kinds of services that uh, they, they could add to it, not just audio services. There's been, for example, a lot of speculation that they could add a mapping type of, of interface uh, using... Google Maps or Waze or or something like that. Uh, again, bringing us back kind of a, another kind of throwback to the portable <laughs> navigation device. Uh, maybe maybe if I'm Garmin, you know, I hop on this uh, this opportunity to get my maps uh, and and a chance to sell premium services uh, back uh, in in front of users. Uh, the opportunity. That they kind of had during the heyday of the portable navigation device or or sat nav uh, in Europe, uh, but the connectivity just really wasn't there uh, back then. Now it is, so uh, th- there's an opportunity for guys like Garmin, TomTom, uh, etc., to to find a a way around uh, those lockdown Android Auto and CarPlay interfaces. It, it's interesting also because this is Spotify's first foray into devices. This was the first device that they brought to market. It will be interesting to see if there are other devices, but it does speak to the importance of the in-vehicle experience for for auto uh, for audio and specifically for Spotify that they see that as a. Uh, an area they need to protect and that they want to see uh, thrive. And, and maybe they're hoping for a little bit of lock-in from their premium subscribers when they have a dedicated device that maybe they'll use it more heavily or rely on it. I would say it's it's a shot across the bow of, of Sirius XM for sure, which has long had a monopoly uh, in terms of premium integrated radio experiences in the vehicle. Uh, of course, that's going to change. As we see more of this integration, as we see more growth of 4G and 5G in the vehicle, but at least for today, for the overwhelming majority of drivers, it's really the best integrated experience, even though it is 
limited uh, as, as opposed to a internet-based service. And uh, they have teased uh, other kinds of devices. Uh, a home thing, I think, was one possibility that they talked about. But uh, but so far, no commitment on on anything beyond this. Thing one, not not thing two, uh, at least not not yet. Yeah, and they they launched it at a time when global supply chains are constrained. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, they've had a hard time bringing it to market. Uh, had probably wanted to bring it to market in in advance of the holidays, and just had a hard time hitting those pr- production schedules. So we're getting it now, uh, arguably still well-timed in advance of the traditional heavy summer driving season, give people the chance to, you know, to really try it out. And uh, we'll, we'll see if, uh, as you noted, Ross, we get a thing two or thing three further down uh, the, the, the path. Uh, in, in our final story from the week, we had a number of announcements from Meta this week. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, their CEO, showed off a, a prototype of a number of uh, new announcements in a live event this week. Uh, they showed a prototype of building virtual worlds simply by describing them. So you could uh, just describe what you want to have built and it will be constructed for you. They announced plans to build a universal language translator within the uh, virtual environment. So that uh, is an interesting idea when it comes to real-time communication across languages. Uh, And... uh, together with a, a couple of other uh, announcements as well. Uh, so we continue to see, you know, Facebook releasing, excuse me, Meta, I should say, releasing the building blocks for what they hope will really help the, the metaverse thrive. Yeah, no shortage of tantalizing visions from Meta in terms of what is possible in a VR environment. Previously, we have seen other apps and technology demonstrations that allow the creation of a world simply by describing it in speech. Uh, NVIDIA has had a a demo called uh, Gauguin, which uh, uses adversarial networks to create a scene that you describe just by typing in words on a web page. Uh, There's also been an app that produces somewhat surrealist, uh, swirly art uh, just by having you describe um, what you want to see happening in the scene. This really, however, seemed to be by far the most advanced example of literally creating a world through your speech. There is some debate around whether or how much of how many of the objects or what kinds of objects included in the scene were actually created from whole virtual cloth, if you will, by AI uh, versus just calling upon a library of objects that may have been created by humans. But it's uh, it's impressive nonetheless, and clearly aimed at one of the big challenges of VR worlds, which is the skill required to create them. 
this is not going to produce as detailed or unique of an environment as a team of professional VR designers would create in developing a unique world or perhaps a scene for a game, uh, but uh, is really more along the lines, as uh, Zuckerberg said, let's let's go to the beach. Let's just get a change of scenery. Uh, and if that scenery is well understood or can be understood well enough by the AI, you'll be able to do that without too much fuss. So today, the focus is on creating what would likely be known environments, typical environments, such as perhaps a, a library or a different kind of uh, terrain. But it certainly shows a, a lot of uh, potential in terms of what it could uh, develop into and uh, really could represent another step in the creator uh, economy where people could uh, perhaps put their own proprietary environments into certain kinds of engines and just allow people to customize them uh, with, uh, with with certain verbs. Just off the top of my head, maybe like a, you know, Beatles yellow submarine type world uh, or uh, other other kinds of uh, animation, for example, might be uh, might be opportunities. I think it also highlights the the interfaces that we're going to be using in these virtual environments. There hasn't really yet been a lot of focus on voice. Most of the focus thus far has been on gesture, using your hands to to move things around. And if you think about like you know the minor, minority report environments or something like that, it's all about moving your hands. To, uh, to move around information, but this suggests that voice will probably play a, a strong role in the how we interact with and navigate these virtual environments uh, together with, you know, together with gesture and, and probably other inputs as well. Uh, I, I've been quite impressed with the um, applications I've seen that use eye tracking within the, the headsets so that they can see what you're looking at or where you're looking and and uh, that can have an influence on the type of experience you're having in the virtual world. So this is a, I think an important step and uh, you know, does open up the idea that, that uh, again, that voice could be an important aspect of how we navigate these virtual environments. I, I also wonder if it is very easy to change the environment dynamically if that could potentially have a disorienting effect on people within the environment, one of the assumed principles of VR or any virtual world is that there's going to be some degree of stability that particularly if you're there with other, other avatars or other people sharing the experience, you're sharing the, the common environment. And if someone can mix up the environment every 10 seconds uh, by saying, okay, now we're in a jungle, now we're in a cave, now we're in, uh, now we're by the ocean. Uh, it seems that it's just another issue to think about in terms of administration uh, at a time when we're already starting to see some of the early challenges around 
maintaining a kind of uh, social order and an etiquette uh, in VR uh, story today by a, a reporter, I believe, who assumed the identity of a, of a 13-year-old girl uh, and uh, describing some of the uh, uh, unwelcome behavior uh, that they received uh, in that persona. So uh, yes, it's a, it's a great capability, but it, it also goes to show how the dynamic nature of a virtual world uh, can be uh, very different, a very different kind of uh, experience when it comes to our understanding of, of permanence uh, or at least persistence for a, a given period of time. And may, maybe voice can help also play a role in providing a safer environment, allowing one to exit out of environments that are that are unpleasant, that are abusive, um, that are dangerous in, in you know the, the virtual world. So, uh, not the uh, the end, but just the beginning on where voice shows up in, in these virtual worlds, and uh, you know we'll probably create a little bit of uh, conflict with what's happening in the real world and in, in real life if you're uh, in a virtual setting and you're you know talking to yourself seemingly or, or saying things while there's others around. It could change what home life looks like or, or even what offices look like if we're going to be highly verbal in these type of environments. So more to come there. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Techspansive. I am Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin.